we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. If it's Tuesday, we must be on the left bank yeah. in uh, Paris. Yeah, you can hear, almost hear the accordions in the back. <laughs> <laughs> or the sirens. We were, we were just out and about uh, having an important... Flanering. Flanering. We were having an important pre-podcast meeting in a very, very nice restaurant. And uh, so far, in, the, in like about half an hour... People have come up to go to John and go, Oh, you are Karl Marx. <laughs> oh, you are Victor Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, you can I'm have to- a permanent stand I'm, here I'm, at the bookshop. I'm, I'm totally coming to live here. It's yeah, good. definitely. <laughs> you, you can live All here. I get in London is men coming up to me saying, What do you use on your beard? Do you use oil? Can I touch it? No, you can't touch it. Yeah, I'm afraid. It's a shortage. It's impossible to go out. And so we're sitting in the in the library, and the library is open. The Sylvia Beach Memorial. Where we're going to do the intro. I'm just interested. This is it's open to people to come up and browse, and can they be allowed to borrow? Normally, when there when there aren't podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's open at all times. Um, I mean, the bookshop's open seven days a week. 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. and uh, and and George, who founded this bookshop, was very intent on keeping a sort of non-commercial side of the bookshop, and yeah. so the whole of the first floor, apart from the poetry corner, are books that are just here to well, read. I think it, anyone who comes here, I came here for the first time in 1981 when I was 18, and um, I hadn't. It was before I'd been to university, so I was doing my usual. And it, it lodges somewhere in your head, this place. I mean, I you know, have, haven't been to City Lights, but I'm sure that's the same. Mm. And I ended up being a bookseller. And I'm sure in some part of... I don't know what you feel about this, Andy. In some kind of the sort of Waterstones ideal that Shakespeare and company was... was, yeah, was Carly, but also, I've got to, I can't pretend I'm something I'm not, John, you know. I, I, you know, W.H. Smith's... Not a my cradle. That's my... That's, you know, so it would have been lovely to have Shakespeare and co as a, an inspiration, well, we, but we, we didn't really have one. In the early days of Waterstones, when we used to be... We used to talk about the books that... In, bookshops that inspired us, and John Sandow and Shakespeare and co, and City yeah, Lights, yeah. Tattered Cover, all these bookshops venerable institutions came up. I mean, I have to say, I don't think many of the Waterstones came, <laughs> came anywhere near. Although there were one or two. The right? early one, yeah. Yeah, they were one or two. I mean, I think, you know, at its best, High Street Ken and the brilliant, yeah. Robert Topping's brilliant bookshop in Manchester. Bath. And Bath, Bath had some good... good but it, it, and it, still it does, of course, should it, anyone be listening. It does feel, in that slightly pretentious way that one has, but, you know, that great line about T.S. Eliot had about a kneeling where a place where prayer had been valid. I do feel this is a place where reading has been proved valid. You know that over yeah. over generations of yeah. people, you do feel there's a, there is a there is almost a kind of a, a, a sense of it being a shrine to to a certain kind of values, reading, literature, things that matter. Well, let's well, go ahead nice and desecrate the shrine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are we going to uh, are we going to do this? Let's go. Okay. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. This show is a special edition as we've decamped from our usual berth around the kitchen table of Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. Instead, we're gathered around a rickety table in the first floor library of the legendary Parisian bookshop, Shakespeare and Company, looking out from the left bank over the Seine to the front of Notre Dame. As a view, it's 
Hashtag not bad. <laughs> I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. <laughs> oh, and I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are Adam Biles. Hello, Adam. Hello. Adam is a writer and novelist, and his book Feeding Time is published by the Galley Beggar Press. Adam is an expat Englishman, and he has lived in Paris for the last... Almost 13 years. Almost 13 years. I noticed that you were described in The Guardian, oh, Adam... <laughs> As quotes a megawatt talent. <laughs> uh, that's that's spelt W A T T, not W H A T. And um, also, also Adam uh, works here at Shakespeare and Co. Mm. And last year I did an event here a year ago, which was huge fun. Oh, God, where I, knew you were I this up. yeah, you did. You had a year to be ready. And, uh, and um, he he and I un- both undertook to at the suggestion of a customer in the shop to read. The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I read it the next day and thought it was amazing. Adam, what did you think? I don't like to be told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So a whole crowd shouting at me that I will read The Little Prince. (laughs) Didn't work. Didn't work. work. I'm so sorry. That's one of our top three sellers as well. It's really good. I've never read it. And Dan Kieran, my co-founder, Mm -hmm. it's his favourite book in all the world. Not being funny. Every, have you read it, Sylvia? Yeah, I've read it a long time okay, ago. Okay, so we're both saying to the other two members <laughs> yeah. of the party today, you should read it, it's really good. Have you read it? Yeah, I've read it. Matt's, Matt's here as well, everybody. I could draw an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and alongside Adam is Sylvia Whitman. Sylvia is the proprietor of Shakespeare & Co., a role she started helping her father, George Whitman, with in 2003. Yes. Is that right? And when did your father move into this these premises for Shakespeare and Company? Um, he, ho- he opened Shakespeare and Company here in 1951. Ooh. He arrived in Paris in 1946 on the GI Bill and he moved into a hotel on the Boulevard Saint-Michel and he left his hotel door open at all times and he filled his room with books and at some point his friend that he met here, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, said, George, you know, you really should open a bookshop because you're just stuffing this hotel room with books and people are hanging out here, but, you know, it's getting a little small. <laughs> and so he found this amazing space here, which is a, it's a 17th century building opposite Notre Dame. Um, it's a really magnetic part of, totally, of Paris. Totally. I feel like I'm sitting... In, we're here in the library and I feel like I'm sitting inside of the perfect backlisted listener's head. <laughs> so I can look up, I read, I read up so from true. where I'm sitting, I can see books by Winston Graham, I can see As If By Magic by Angus Wilson. Nicholson's Ghost by John Gardner, a book I've yeah. always wanted to read. I mean, it's, it's Henri Consul, Graham Greene, just in the corner. It's... Upstairs there's a copy of Dentistry and Its Victims. Oh, is it on the third floor? Yeah, have you read it? There's such an eclectic... No, I haven't read that. It's not even on my list, but there's such an eclectic mix-up there. A lot of medical textbooks as well. Yeah, next to Stalin biographies (laughs) and... Which Burroughs referred to quite a lot, right? He did, yeah, he he did some research. Because he was researching and writing. And, and you have a cafe here and you have the, the antiquarian bookshop next mm-hmm. door. Yes, we have. Um, yes, you don't need to leave. We're trying to make it a space <laughs> where, you know, we will lock people in, especially writers, for, for a long time. Um, no, we have the cafe we opened two years ago. And uh, surprisingly, because last year was quite difficult after the attacks, of course. Uh, we were very nervous about the fact mm. that we just opened a cafe. But actually, it brought us a lot of French customers, and it really saved us last year, which was fantastic. It's great Um, coffee as well. And good coffee. So the book that we're here to talk about uh, with um, Adam and Sylvia is Aribour, Against Nature, Against the Grain, depending on how you uh, translate it, by J.K. Huismans. So we're going to come on to that in a minute. Uh, But, John, I have to ask you, as is uh, traditional... Even though we're in Paris. Let's not talk about being in Paris. What have you been reading this week? I've been reading a uh, collection of stories published last year by Jesse Greengrass with the brilliant title, An Account of the Decline of the Great Orc According to One Who Saw It. Um, it's. Uh, I, I, we were talking earlier, Andy, but there's an amazing... seems to me that there's an, been an amazing... Renovation of, of of the short story in, in in I know everybody says that this is happening and then it goes away again, but I think they're particularly they're a group of of, of younger uh, women writers who who've published amazing debut collections, 
I'm thinking about uh, Atrib by Ely Williams, mm-hmm. who we, we, mm-hmm. we talked about. I'm thinking about Pond by Claire Louise mm-hmm. Bennett. Um, the Joanna Walsh, she was a guest on Backlisted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Jesse Greengrass, this is... It's that sort of crackle of excitement when you read someone. The, the stories are very, very strong in this collection. They're not all e- equally strong. But the, just her, her, her use of language, her precision... It's it's a, it's it's as good a, a first collection as I can remember reading, and and it's been a very very good year for first collections. Um, when was that published? It was last year. It's won the the Edge Hill Short Story Prize, yeah. and it also won a Somerset Maugham Award. Um, she's just about to release a new novel, which I've read, which is also brilliant. So that's a. I mean, I know that's always the difficult second album problem. <laughs> You've done a collection of stories and a how bad a novel. Well, she's she's made that transition. Uh, that that novel is called Sight and it's this was a John Murray original very very good editor at John Murray bringing out I think a lot of uh, really strong Mm. and interesting debut collections but the stories are I mean they range from the the, for the opening story which is a a very powerful sort of briny account by a sailor of the the horrific destruction of the great orc I mean these birds were unable really to fly and they were. The, 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 I'll read a, a, a tiny passage in a moment to give you a flavour of it. There's a sort of. I was thinking of things it reminded me of. There's a sort of. There's a theme of isolation and coldness, and uh, uh, and, and, and salinity in in the book. There's a there's an amazing, very Huisman's uh, story about a woman who is imagining. Dif- she's got a, a different lives for herself, including being a, an observer of polar bears in in, in Svalbard, mm-hmm. um, in that sort of way that Huisman's re- mm. imagines going to London and doesn't actually get there. <laughs> um, there are uh, there's an amazing account of Paracelsus, the kind of alchemist, 16th century mm-hmm. alchemist drinking in taverns and challenging people I mean she does historical she does contemporary two of the novel two of the stories are set in the future in a that kind of I'm again I'm thinking of uh, Sarah Hall uh, another Mm -hmm. great short story writer her Madame Zero collection that we talked about um there's a brilliant story set in a call center I'm going to read a tiny little passage from that as well um it's it's about class. There's a great last story where a woman, uh, a woman goes back to... She takes the train journey back. It's called Scropton, Sudbury, Marchington, Utoxeter. <laughs> and she basically... Her parents were greengrocers and she goes to a public school and she's embarrassed by the fact that the greengrocers sort of lies about and then she has midlife crisis and ends up taking the train journey back and stands in the pouring rain for about four hours outside the greengrocer's shop and has a sort of... I mean, the book's very... It's about the precariousness of self. One story, there's a man whose whole life... He starts to see ghosts and more and more people die and more and more ghosts sort of... They don't really say anything to him, but they're just around. He has to sort of live through them. So the connection past, present, history... It's, it's a really, really ambitious first collection. Um, but let me read to you... I'll read two really short bits just to, just to give you some flavour. This is towards the end of the account of the decline of the Great Orc, the title story. Here is the truth. We blamed the birds for what we did to them. There was something in their passivity that enraged us. We hated how they didn't run away. If they'd run away from us, we could have been more kind. We hated the birds. When we looked at them, we wanted nothing more than to smash and beat and kill. We felt in them a mirror of our sin, and the more we killed of them, the cleaner we became. Sometimes we would be two days at the killing, or three even, and we wouldn't sleep. We would keep at our slaughter through darkness with the light from the fires only. And in the morning, the bodies thrown from the cliffs would cover the sea for yards around the rock. The eggs we trampled, dancing across them in our boots. No matter what we did, the birds stayed huddled to the rock, waiting for us to reach them. This is why we killed so many of them. Because of this way they had of watching us. This was why we killed so many more than we needed without thinking about what might happen next year. This and the way their numbers deceived us, making us think there could be no end to it, but we could go on and on forever. It was a kind of madness they caused in us, and afterwards we would be exhausted. On the way home, we wouldn't talk about what had happened, but only about how much money we could make from the feathers. But alone with ourselves, we blamed the birds. 
Wow. Honestly, <laughs> 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 wow. she, she writes sentences, and you don't get this very often, but you think, I don't know why I bother. <laughs> I mean, really, really incredibly assured. Just very, very quickly, and then, because it's just a totally different thing, it, it, it's a much shorter bit, this. Just to say about the woman in the call centre, I tried to sound like someone who's answered the phone in the bath, or like someone who was worrying that what's on the stove might burn. I tried to sound like someone who was afraid of flying. I, I tried to sound like Columbo. I tried to sound <laughs> as if I was successful and in control of myself and my destiny. Sometimes I try to sound like a, an old-fashioned Hollywood starlet. I lower my voice to a whisper and make it deep and husky and fill it with breath. I, I try to sound as if every word I utter is an invitation. I try to sound as if what I'm saying is laced with eroticism. In this voice I say, can I take the long card number? <laughs> I say, we can also offer you insurance from as little as 99% per month. I say, have you tried turning it off at the wall <laughs> that's the end of the story oh it's so good so she is a real find mm. and I think she'll I, you know in that sort of terrible football manager way I think she'll go all the way <laughs> <laughs> do we do we think that I um, we talked about short stories quite a lot on backlisters and we like reading short stories I think bookish people like reading short stories yeah do, do you feel there is a kind of short story renaissance um, going on is that making its way out into the world I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're always popular. I mean, I don't know if the Renaissance in as much as I'm not sure they ever really went away. No, but there is a sort no. of feeling, there was for many years, and there might still be that people don't buy, the public <clears throat> do not buy well, volumes of short stories in, and, in and the, quantity. Well, worse than that, I think it's that publishers don't commission them, mm. and I think maybe that's yeah. changing a little bit. We mm. get a lot of story collections coming through at Unbound because it's it's a kind of, it's it's a sort of, it's a classic way of somebody starting because mm -hmm. you tend, I suppose the way you tend to start writing is, is a lot of people start with, with short stories because sure. they're, they're kind of, they're excess. They're, I mean, they, you do feel, I do feel that with the Jesse Greengrass to an extent. Some of them feel like exercises mm -hmm. in style, mm -hmm. but there is a kind of a, just a, you know, the, the quality of the language is so, is, is so good. And I mean, a, and a range, I think, somebody's trying out different, different registers, mm -hmm. different characters, different historical periods. I do feel there's a renaissance, because I'm with you in that mm. there was a few years where publishers were struggling to, to sell them, to sell mm -hmm. the short story collections. Somewhere. Well, traditionally, I think short, volumes of short stories would be published by novelists between novels. Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. right. What have you got? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. got but stories. actually, I think I think there is a change. I think writers who specialise in the short story mm. are more prevalent now than they were ten mm -hmm. years ago. And, and I think a, a trip, the Ely, Ely Williams, yeah. for example, that was such a brilliantly thought through. Um, you know, the way there are also sort of collections where the stories are are kind of connected. You're, you're the, the, the Fernanda. Ah. Uh, well, it's the, funny you should say that. Uh, good, because, <laughs> because Andy, yeah, <laughs> what well have you done. been reading? <laughs> I uh, so I've been reading a book by a writer called Eve Babbitt, called Eve's Hollywood, which was republished a couple of years ago by NR NYRB Books, our friends at NYRB Books, and it's it's sort of fiction, but not fiction. It's clearly highly autobiographical fiction. They're not even short stories; they're sketches, and they're about. Eve Babbitts or someone very like Eve Babbitts who has changed the name to avoid certain repercussions, I suspect, growing up in L.A. And uh, Eve Babbitts is a kind of... Um, she's a journalist, uh, uh, a writer. She's written fiction, non-fiction. Uh, she, um, she designed album covers for The Birds, Buffalo Springfield and Linda Ronster. Wow. She's kind of, uh, there's a very famous photograph of Marcel Duchamp uh, playing chess with a naked yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the naked woman. Wow. Okay. So, um, so oh, she's a, so she's <laughs> kind of an she's an and she gets mentioned in the same breath as Joan Didion, mm. Grace Paley, mm -hmm. Renata Adler, um, and. Uh, uh, so, so Eve's and Hollywood. Is this, first, is this a first collection? I think this was her first book. Yeah, she went on to write another novel called Slow Days, Fast Company, which was published in the late seventies about LA. Um, but this one is kind of so. This one is kind of sketches LA of LA in the fifties and sixties. She writes about her high school. She writes a. There's a brilliant piece in here, a sketch of Graham Parsons, 
when he fell in and then fell out again with Keith Richards. Which <laughs> <laughs> is wonderful. Um, so but a bit, a bit Cand- Candice Bushnell, but yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, so I'm just gonna. I just got a couple of little bits to read because um, she's so good. She's so funny, and she's got such an eye for a one-liner. The the opening chapter is called "Daughters of the Wasteland." Uh, the wasteland being in 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 LA, it being LA. She says. Uh, I don't remember how old I was when I first heard Los Angeles described as a wasteland or seven suburbs in search of a city or any of the other curious remarks uttered by people. It was never like that for us growing up here. For one thing, there was always so much going on, so many different people, and my mother's constant soirees and... uh, Sorry. And my mother's constant soirees and dinners. Wasteland is a word I don't understand anyway, because physically, surely, they couldn't have thought it was a wasteland. It has all these citrus trees and flowers (laughs) growing everywhere. I know they meant culturally, but it wasn't. (laughs) Culturally, L.A. has always been a humid jungle alive with seething L.A. projects that I guess people from other places just can't see. It takes a certain kind of innocence to like L.A. anyway. It requires a certain plain happiness inside to be happy in L.A., to choose it and be happy here. When people are not happy, they fight against L.A. and say it's a wasteland and other helpful descriptions. (laughs) Vera Stravinsky once told me that in 1937 she went on a picnic in a few limousines. <laughs> isn't that, I love isn't that I love brilliant, it. right? I'll start, hang on. I know, I know. She, this is such a good story. I don't want to build this up. It's going to a very good place, right? Vera Stravinsky once told me that in 1937 she went on a picnic in a few limousines that Paulette Goddard had prepared, quote, because she was quite a gourmet, unquote, Vera said. <laughs> and on the picnic were the Stravinsky's, Charlie Chaplin and Paulette Goddard, Greta Garbo, Bertrand Russell and the Huxleys. <laughs> they got into the cars to drive to a likely spot, but there were no likely spots, and they drove and drove. There had been a drought, and everything was dry. There was no grass. And so finally they spotted the measly L.A. quote-unquote river and decided to spread their blanket on its ridiculous banks and make the best of it. The L.A. River is a trickle that only looks slightly like a river if there's been a downpour for three months. But even then, it doesn't look like a river. (laughs) Anyway, they spread out the food, the champagne, the caviar, the pate and everything and sat on the banks of the river beneath a bridge over which cars were going. Hey! They looked up. And there was a motorcycle cop with his fists on his hips looking cross. <laughs> yes, Bertrand Russell stood up to inquire. <laughs> there was a sign that said people were not allowed to picnic by the river. The cop pointed at the sign, looked at Bertrand Russell, and then said, Can't you read? <laughs> If the story's details are different, if it was another year and the Huxleys weren't there, still, it is an L.A. wasteland story. It's a story of L.A. The cop only relented when he recognised Garbo. <laughs> so that's my, so that, so it's terrific. She's so good. She's got such a... a there's a brilliant one-liner here. She's talking about how much she... She writes a whole little chapter about Lawrence for Arabia, how much she loved Lawrence for Arabia. She's trying to work out why, why, why Lawrence for Arabia grabbed her so much, and she says... Why is there only one Lawrence of Arabia and why isn't it still playing? I could kick myself for missing that first year. It was all those Academy Awards which made me so wary. Someone should have told me it was good. <laughs> so, so, and then she has a brilliant chapter, and I'll just read a tiny bit. Matt, you can always cop, you can always get rid of this, get rid of it, but we're enjoying it. Uh, um, called The Hollywood Branch Library where she talks about, and it's this seemed appropriate, what books meant to her, the books that she loved. And, John, she has so many good little one-liners in here. She says, My education has been through reading, which has been my salvation and backbone throughout life. The time I wanted to kill myself in New York, Dombey and Son saved me. <laughs> Charles Dickens is perfect for accidental hit bottom. Anthony Trollope <laughs> is too, but he's so divine that it's a shame to waste him just because you're in trouble. <laughs> Here's another bit. I'm just going to read a couple of more. This is so brilliant. Virginia Woolf is hard, but I've done it. 
<laughs> and we did an episode about Virginia Woolf a few a few months ago, so that resonates. Virginia Woolf tantalises me. I wish I could write like that. She is in love with London, and I am in love with LA. But London has seasons and this giant history and strata of society. Virginia Woolf wouldn't like LA. <laughs> But maybe she'd forgive me for loving it anyway. The Waves is the best she's written. You go crazy, it's so perfect. And then it was her, A Room of One's Own, that made me believe in yeah. women's lib. I never liked it when Gloria the Crass and Gross was trying to write about it. It was like reading that radical propaganda where the words are so poorly selected and so divorced from humans that you have to really discount your eyes to be able to let what they're saying get into your head. <laughs> but when Virginia Woolf does it, it's easy. She's right, and they're wrong. Uh, and she's got another couple of things. Uh, just... oh, I love that description of like, how... This book is things. so good. Yeah, I mean, this so, is just yeah, pure enjoyment, that. man. Is it, is it just a reissue so or what? Yeah, it's a reissue. It's yeah. in the early 70s. Right. And it was out of print for 30 years or something, oh, 40 years. It, the picnic scene just sounds like some sort of really niche fan yeah. fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly what I was Can't you read? So we've got... Yeah, we've got... We've got Chadwick, we've got the version. Who else should we invite? I've read Proust all the way through because everyone said I'd like it. But Colette's little sketch of Proust coming into a room after everyone had thought he'd gone and already had begun gossiping about how he was a fag <laughs> was only about three paragraphs and you could simply imply the other nine million pages. <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, I like the other nine million pages and I recommend them to anyone in solitary confinement or otherwise out of commission who can't read Proust at the laundromat. And last, I think, but not that's least... A, that's a T-shirt. And last, I think, but not least, is Henry James. <laughs> when I grow up, that's what I want to be. Henry James is just right. Not too simple like Dickens, not too impossible like Proust, just right. And my cousin tells me, she's reading that enormous biography that just, of him that just came out, that he was always going out to no, dinner no. and to parties. So when I grow up, I can still have fun. <laughs> I don't know about being celibate, though I don't want to, and nowadays it would ruin your reputation. And Henry James always understood the spirit of the times. Very good. And that's what Eve Babbitts, you read Eve Babbitts for the, uh, yeah, yeah. For the spirit of the times, mm. late 60s, early 70s LA, as, you, as one would, would read, say, Joan Didion perhaps. I but unlike Joan Didion, Eve Babbitts has got the LA, it's your, brilliant one-liner. You if know? you're not happy in yourself, then LA's an, a nightmare. Yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. just, you know, if you go into it with a naive, it's exactly right. Mm. Well... And that this point, at which point the the delighted laughter comes screeching to <laughs> We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. So we are now going to switch to talking about Against Nature Arabur by Joris Karl Huismans. And as is traditional on that listed, Adam. Yes. Where were you? when you first read this extraordinary book? Um, I was in Paris. I'd only just moved here. Um, my brother was living here at the time as well, and I'd fallen in with... Well, we had fallen in with a couple of friends, one uh, Irish guy called Jared, one French guy, uh, Jean-Francois, who knew, knew him as Jeff. And this sort of atmosphere... We were all big readers already, but this sort of atmosphere built up between the four of us of this kind of weird sort of literary one-upmanship, you know, and I, I think probably a little a little bit of that pervades this podcast as well. You want to recommend the the next big book, the next book that is going to sort of the, the next stoner, <laughs> yeah, the one that's going to surprise somebody, shock yeah, yeah. somebody, um, and so for example. Uh, I remember Jared recommended uh, Céline uh, to, to me for the first time, and that was okay. just something which completely blew my mind. Uh, Blaise Sontras was another one. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. uh, L'Autremont, people like that. And then Jean-Francois, one day, I, I think it came out of a conversation of um, sort of literature that has a physical effect on you. And I remember him giving me the um, Aribor and saying, this one will make you sick. Um, but, but, but almost as, like, as, as, as a way to recommend it, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to... You know, it's going to leave you feeling nauseated. Yeah, it's going to yeah, leave yeah. you feeling stuffed in some way, but you're going to love it. And that was the that was the first time that I read it, and he was right. I, I I'm going to state my interest right now. I read uh, this book in for the first time in 2006. It's one of the 50 books that I read for the year of reading dangerously. But mm. 
I ended up not writing about it. I have mm. one of these weird things that happened when I was working on that book. That there were books that, as I was reading, I was thinking, oh, wow, I can't wait to write about this. I've got so much to say about it. And then when it came to the finished book, there wasn't room because it didn't fit in the narrative that I was trying to put together. Mm-hmm. So I never ended up writing about uh, Against Nature. Uh, but I think this is uh, just... just I'm reading it again and reading some more Huisman's for mm-hmm. for this backlisted. I just love this book so much. Uh, I, I, and and John, when, when I, did you I'd read? Never, it? I'd never read it, but like it was, it's one of those books that you can't read anything about the development of the novel and uh, the development of, 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 of actually all kinds of things, uh, kind of French Catholicism, uh, the, uh, the the development of decadent art, sim- symbolism, Mallarmé, uh, modernism. It's a, it's one of those books which has it, it's an important kind of uh, sort of navigational point for the development of, of modern literature. So you have an idea of what it's about, mm-hmm. but uh, as it were, getting my hands in and and, and, and kind of furkling around with it and reading it for this podcast, it's um it's it's everything that everybody always said it was. It's completely unlike anything else that I can think of, although it has some... It's, on one level, a nightmarish version of uh, that that Channel 4 show. What's it called? Grand... What's it called? The one that... The, the, the house makeover sh- the thing with... Grand uh, Designs. Grand, grand Designs. <laughs> it's, grand, it's sort of Grand Designs set in the seventh circle of hell. That's amazing. <laughs> what, what are you doing with this room? Oh, well, this room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um... It's also, on another level, a biblio-memoir. It's, I mean, mm. I love what he says, and we should talk a little bit, obviously, about Huisman's, but I love what he says about it. He said, as I thought about it, the subject grew requiring painstaking research. So each, each chapter in this book, in a way, is a kind of an imaginative essay or a sort of trip, trippy kind of phantasmagoria. So he says, each chapter contained the concentrate of a specialised subject, the sublimate of a different art. Each chapter condensed itself into a meat essence of precious mm. stones, of perfumes, of flowers, of religious or secular literature, of profane music or of plain song, and, in, and certainly painting as well. So it is like that. It's, it's a novel <laughs> about a man who... It's got no plot. It's got almost no plot. basically like, yeah. does up his house <laughs> in the most insane way. And thinks about going to London, leaves, and then comes back. <laughs> then he gets ill. I mean, I don't think there is a spoiler problem here. He gets ill. No. And then he finds the most one of the most unpleasant ways of getting over his illness, which is to do with he has dietary problems. And so he, <laughs> instead of eating, he starts to have meat enemas, which is... Um, <laughs> I mean, if, if I were Graham Norton, I would be. And then he, and, and he is. I mean, you were talking on Twitter this year about somebody boiling your piss, Andy, which is a great. I mean, this is a book. This year, yeah. But this book no, this is, week, I this was. This book is a. Is a, is a, is a it must be the first really proper kind of angry rant against uh, as a sort of fictional. Character. I can't think of, of many books that where the invective is more more brilliant. It's mm-hmm. so dense and so rich. The language and the, I mean, the scholarship in it is is just remarkable. And just one of the things I absolutely love about Huisman's is he is the he is the master of spleen. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just read you this this tiny amount because it seems appropriate. It's about a character called Desescent. That's right, mm-hmm. isn't it, Adam? How's uh, my pronunciation? Desessant. Desessant. Yeah. Thank you. Not des, as in des. Who, who we should say is the sort Desmond of the, the last sort of the last sort of slightly diseased kind of mm-hmm. scion of a of a kind of an aristocratic family mm-hmm. who may or may not have More resembled Huisman's himself. Yeah. Uh, Money. Or, or Baudelaire. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, the relationship between yeah. Huisman's and Baudelaire is a is a very you know is again fraught yeah. with interest. Um, <laughs> Uh, Desessant dropped these people and sought the society of men of letters. Oh, yes. <laughs> Imagining that theirs must surely be kindred spirits with which his own mind would feel more at ease. A fresh disappointment lay in store for him. He was revolted by their mean, spiteful judgments, <laughs> their conversation that was as commonplace as a church door. And the the nauseating discussions in which they gauged the merit of a book by the number of editions it went through and the profits from its sale. 
At the same time, he discovered the free thinkers, those bourgeois doctrinaires who clamoured for absolute liberty in order to stifle the opinions of other people, to be nothing but a set of greedy, shameless hypocrites whose intelligence he rated lower than the village cobblers. His contempt for humanity grew fiercer, and at last he came to realise that the world is made up mostly of fools and scoundrels. It became perfectly clear to him that he could entertain no hope of finding in someone else the same aspirations and antipathies. No hope of linking up with a mind which, like his own, took pleasure in a life of studious decrepitude. <laughs> no hope of associating an intelligence as sharp and wayward as his own with that of any author or scholar. Mm-hmm. And that, my friends, is, in the, is on page eight. <laughs> he puts his foot down on page eight. What happens is, de descent, uh, utterly um, sick of the world, mm-hmm. takes himself in, leaves Paris, takes himself into seclusion attempts to, uh, as you were saying, John, distill pure aesthetic experience yeah. and fails. I mean, the, the core being the idea that nature was a unimaginative, you know, repetitive mm-hmm. old bore and that the, the great thing was the human imagination and that, that, that not only could that the human imagination match anything that nature had to offer, yeah. it actually could transcend it and... This is a this is a, 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 a the beginning of an essay, very short beginning from a wonderful book called Parisian Sketches, which was published before uh, Against Nature. This is about the Bièvre, mm-hmm. a a like it's like somebody's written an impressionist sketch mm-hmm. of the canal that runs through Camden. Uh-huh. Okay, mm-hmm. the Bièvre, which no longer exists, which no longer exists, yeah. right? Or rather, it runs underground. Anyways, in what you were saying, John, this is this is uh, you know we're in the age of nature writing, as you know. Uh, this is what Huysmans uh, has to say on the topic. <laughs> and his favourite. Nature is interesting only when sickly and distressed. <laughs> I don't deny her prestige and her glory when with a fulsome laugh she cracks open her bodice of sombre rocks and flaunts her green nipple breasts in the sun. <laughs> but I confess I don't experience before these sap induced debaucheries that pitiful charm that a run-down corner of a great city a ravaged hillside or a ditch of water trickling between two lank trees inspires in me (laughs) fundamentally the beauty of a landscape consists in its melancholy now that that's some nature writing i can get behind and to add to that um he asks in the book or rather this is asks does there exist anywhere on this earth a being conceived in the joys of fornication and born in the throes of motherhood, who is more dazzlingly, more outstandingly beautiful than the two locomotives recently put into service on the Northern <laughs> Railway. Yes, I know. And then he goes on to point these sort of erotic descriptions of these. I mean, it, it's it's properly bonkers this book, but bonkers in a kind of. I wonder if this, you know, it's the apetit le bourgeois that kind of oh, yeah. anger against sort of. I, I know it's there in Swift. But it, it does seem to be one of the... This, this is one of the great angry books. Well, France has a great tradition, doesn't it, of of um, a pâté le, le bourgeoisie from... Molière. Mm. Molière, Huysmans, Gainsbourg, mm. Welbeck. We're going to come on to Welbeck because of the, the mm, links the between Huysmans yeah. and Submission. That's when I read a, just a few uh, paragraphs of this book in, in French was when it came, came back in conversation with Welbeck's um, Submission. Yeah, and uh, and it's I, like you said, it's so striking that the language, the richness, and the, the it's very flowery and very kind of. It made me think somehow a little bit of Georges Perec, yeah. Les Choses. You know, the, just yeah, the yeah. detail. It's like the opposite of what Zola does in plunging well, you into the, social context. It's very much. He really, really upset Zola. I mean, <laughs> right. we, I mean, Adam, maybe we should do a little bit more context about about the book and uh, and where it came from because it did. Well, I want to ask he, Adam. He, he, I want to ask Adam how he felt reading it again. because yeah. you read it again for us. Yeah. Now. So this was the third reading, and actually, I'm not a big rereader generally, so. I... This could be the only, possibly the only novel I've actually read three times. And um, I started reading it in French because I thought I'd already read it twice in English. I thought I'd, <laughs> after 13 years I'd give it a go. Um, <laughs> and you translate. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Your uh, French is pretty good. It's, it's all right, but after f- probably about 15 minutes I, <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to get very far with it. It's, no, it's hard, an it? incredibly dense, incredibly florid um, French and also he as I think we're going to talk about later um, with Andy like this 
uh, he, he coins uh, quite a few words as well. So when you're not 100% stable, let's say, in your <laughs> appreciation of a language, you're not entirely sure yeah. whether he's leading you up the garden path or whether it's just your inadequacies with a language that... I, I will, I will say, I mean, we were talking about this. We both... I, I, the thing that, that shocked me the first time I read this book and shocks me on rereading and uh, uh, I think is one of those things which gets marginalised in books like this, but it is extremely funny. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, yeah, yeah. and it's meant to be funny. Mm-hmm. You know, the film director Bruce Robinson, the, guy, the gentleman who wrote and directed With Nolan Eye. There's a lot of With Nolan But this is right? his favourite book. Mm-hmm. And he says, ah. he says this is the funniest book ever written. Amazing. And I certainly think there are three or four set-piece chapters in Against Nature. Mm-hmm. There's a... I mean, they're the famous ones. John, you mentioned one. There is a chapter where, inspired by reading Dickens, <laughs> uh, Desaison <laughs> decides that he would travel to London. Yeah. But he, what happens is, he, it's so... He just goes to a restaurant in Paris, <laughs> and, Paris. And, and, and by the end of eating his meal, he thinks, oh, I've probably had the English experience, <laughs> and goes home again. But this, this whole, the whole oh. book is about this. It's about that you're, with your, all you need is your imagination and some strange... AIDS. I mean, we can talk to. I mean, the, 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 what the mouth organ? The mouth organ. Where he, he plays music. He kind of basically all the instruments in the orchestra are assigned a different spirit, and you could mm-hmm. he would literally. It's a synesthetic mouth organ, <laughs> right? Which, but what's so brilliant about Huisman's? In and and also we haven't talked about that. There's a chapter four, is a chapter where. Huisman's orders his jeweler mm-hmm. to encrust his pet tortoise with uh, <laughs> rubies and diamonds and magnificent stones. Yeah. And at the end of the chapter, he notices that the tortoise has died and can't stand all the way. I mean, it's one of the most brilliant comic set pieces. But but here's the thing about this, so brilliant about Huisman's. Several other writers, including Zola, who was one of his uh, inspirations, mm-hmm. André Breton, say the thing about Huisman's is he's inviting you, he's brave enough and bold enough to invite you to find him absurd before he points out the absurdity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a real method to it. Mm-hmm. If he's making you laugh, he also really means it at the same time. Similarly with his, his flowers as well. So he decides... Um, originally he decides he's a fan of artificial flowers, obviously, because artificial flowers can, su- uh, can supersede nature. But then he decides what he'd rather have are real flowers that resemble artificial flowers. And so he, he goes about... He goes... Uh, he's goes about ordering and finding the ones that the art, the real flowers that look the most artificial and then when you're reading it you're thinking well th- th- these these are going to die <laughs> these are, you know this is this this, this, the, the, this is going to sort of fall apart within a few days and then then he sort of remarks upon this a few a few pages later and seems uh, quite well, surprised by the fact. I know. There's, I mean, there's a famous description of the black dinner in the book as well, where he's sort of ever making stuff out of black things, having mm-hmm. black meat. But I love. There's a sort of the mad kind of obsessiveness of this. This is instead of going to the seaside, okay? <laughs> there, by salting your bath water and mixing into it according to the formula given in the pharmacopoeia, sodium sulfate, hydrochloric and magnesium, and lime, by taking from a tightly closed screw-top box, a ball of twine or a tiny piece of rope specially purchased in one of those huge ship's chandlers whose enormous warehouses and basements reek of sea tides and seaports, by sniffing those fragrances which will still cling to the twine or piece of rope, by perusing a really good photograph of the casino and zealously studying in the Gijon a description of the beauties of the seaside resort where you would like to be, by letting yourself be rocked in your bathtub by the waves made by the bateau mouche as they pass close beside the pontoon. Finally, by listening to the moaning of the wind gusting under the arches of the bridge and the rumbling of the omnibuses as they cross the Pont Royal just a few feet above you, the illusion of being near the, near the sea is undeniable, overpowering, absolute. <laughs> it's just a man in his bath, sniffing bits of rope, looking at photographs, pretending he's in the seaside. I mean, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything in literature up to that point quite as mad as that. <laughs> I mean, it is a totally, it, 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 it's, it's, and yet at the same time, you know, 
it, we'll talk about the, the, the he ends his life obviously not just as a, a, as, a as a Catholic but as a, an oblate as a but, but that's it as well it's the delight in the artificial yeah. and this celebration of it like even when he's deciding what colour to paint his rooms he decides against painting one of them purple because um, he says it, it is possible to see purple by ingesting a specified amount of santonin and thus it becomes a simple matter for anyone to change the colour of his, of his walls without laying a finger on them <laughs> So it's the, it's um it's mad drugs and then it's it's flowers and then it's 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 amazing gemstones, mm-hmm. and the whole I mean it's 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 every sense as you say that synesthesia senses sort of swapping out for one another. What's so interesting about this book is that it has retained its power to as as you were saying as make you feel sick or mm-hmm. shock you mm-hmm. in different eras. When's it when it's published? It's seen as a reaction against naturalism against Zola. It's described famously as a breviary of the decadence. It's as a decadent text that Oscar Wilde discovers it, adores it, makes it the one of the motive in the plot of the portrait of Dorian Gray, that Dorian Gray, this, this evil book, this decadent book, falls into his hands <laughs> and corrupts him. It seems to be corrupted. It's not published properly in English until the 1950s. Really? And is then adopted by the, the, the 60s generation as this kind of... Um, um, anything goes text uh, 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 Marianne Faithful says in her autobiography that uh, the way it worked in the 60s, she says she literally says this she says, you know, we would say to somebody have you read Arabore? and if they said yes you'd fuck them and then but that's still going my, my friend Chris Sullivan who was in Blue Ronde de la Tert's 80s you know, wag club it's one of, it's one of his, it's one of his favourite uh, yeah Books. He and he, he wrote an essay saying, you know, it was uh, he didn't know whether Bowie had read it, but he was pretty sure Bowie had read it because in a way, Descent is a classic. Mm. Is I mean, it, there there is that sense of the outsider, the person who who just doesn't want to be like everybody else, mm-hmm. who can't stand. I mean, the the final Jeremiah against the bourgeoisie in this book is one of the. It's just one of the great. It's just one of the great sort of bird flipping moments in literature. I um I, I I mean I when I the first time I read it and again, indeed reading it again I don't know what you feel about this, I felt it was a book, you know like I say it speaks to different generations. Mm-hmm. It felt like a book about consumerism. Yeah, completely. So modern, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of somebody who is able to get whatever they want, to have an a surfeit of everything. And what spiritual effect does that have? They're they're empty. They it, it exhausts it. He's left with. He throws himself on the mercy of the Catholic Church. That's how the book ends. Mm. Uh, and when it was published, wasn't it? Didn't he become a sort of figure that everyone wanted yeah, he, to be like? He says, he says, he says, Arabur, this is him writing 20 years afterwards, Arabur fell like a meteorite into the literary fairgrounds, exciting both stupefaction and anger. The press were thrown into total confusion. Such ramblings and ravings had never been seen. After <laughs> describing me as a misanthropic impressionist and calling Desaissant a maniac and an imbecile of a complex kind, the, acade- the academics like Monsieur Lemaitre waxed indignant because I did not sing the praises of Virgil. And it, it goes on. It's sort of... It's, 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 he, in all this hurly-burly, only one writer saw clearly, Babé d'Orvier, who incidentally did not know me at all. And then he goes on to say... The, the, the great line that he says, after such a book, the only thing left for the author is to choose between the muzzle of a pistol and the foot of the cross. There it is. The mm-hmm. choice is made. <laughs> so it was uh, immediate success when it came out. Yes, yeah. it's a huge success. It's scandalous. It defines the particular mm. era. I, it, this wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an episode of Backlisted if oh, I didn't mention... The Bruckner moment. Anita Bruckner. <laughs> as luck would have it, Anita Bruckner in her... Actually, the, her, her book, The Genius of the Future, but republished here in Romanticism and Its Discontents. She uh, has an essay about Huysmans. I'm just going to let... She does. We, we normally do the biographical thing about Huysmans. I'm going to say, give you he was, that he was born in 1848. He died in 1907. He lived up the road from where we are now mm-hmm. uh, for the most never part married. of his life. Never married. And then I'm going to hand over to Dr Bruckner. This is how she introduces Huysmans in a single paragraph. The most brilliant of the critics, the most ardent of the disciples, the most outrageous of the solipsists, and the most sadomasochistic of the romantics was J.K. Huysmans, whose desire to be not only Baudelaire, 
but Edmond de Goncourt and Zola combined overtook him at an early age, but was discarded when his moi pointed out to him a more excruciating form of self-denial. The story of Huisman's career and his life is a series of novels that move from naturalism to decadence to Satanism in La Barre to a, a trilogy of novels based around his conversion to Catholicism. Yeah. And, and Bruckner describes it as a Calvary. It's a spiritual autobiography spread through 30 years of writing uh, uh, fiction. Um, I also just want to bring to your attention this magnificent book that I read last week, The Life of J.K. Huysmans by Robert Baldick, which was written in 1955, published in 1955. Uh, f- absolutely incredible book, one of my favourite books that I've read this year. Was it published alongside the, the Trace translation? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he describes it thus. He says, uh, Besides their interest and importance as human documents... Huisman's novels have considerable historical significance, since each of his major works epitomises some vital phase of the aesthetic, spiritual or intellectual life of late 19th century France. Thus, Avalo, the missile of minor misfortunes, is permeated with the pessimistic spirit of the post-war years and impregnated with the ideas of that period's favourite philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer. Aribor, which Simons aptly called the breviary of the decadence, expressed the tastes and aspirations of an entire generation of writers and artists, and its hero, as Gustav Geoffrey observed, embodies part of the soul of the dying century. And he goes on to, to say how he moves through en route and then to the cathedral, and then he talks about his remark, what he calls Huisman's remarkable style, which his former friend Leon Bloyer picturesquely described as, quote, continually dragging mother image by the hair or the feet down the worm-eaten staircase of terrified syntax. (laughs) (laughs) But he says it's deliberate. It's a deliberately uh, heightened, slightly gamey, that's the word. Medicine and food are the images that he's constantly drawing on. I love the way he just turns, he just gets cross, he doesn't like bars. (laughs) Just decides he doesn't like bars, because bars are not as good as brothels. (laughs) And that, that actually, at least in brothels, you know, you know what you're going in for. But I just there's the the girls working in bars were as stupid, as self-seeking, as base, and as self-indulgent as the women who worked in brothels. Like the prostitutes, they drank without being thirsty, laughed without being amused, went into raptures over the caresses of a common labourer, maligned one another, and scrapped with one another without the slightest provocation. In spite of that, the youth of Paris had never yet observed that, as regards beauty of form, skill of technique, and desirable attire, barmaids were clearly inferior to the women cooped up in the luxurious salons of brothels. My God, thought Desassant, what fools these fellows are who hang around here. Quite apart from their idiotic illusions, they even manage to forget the risks associated with damaged or dubious merchandise, to no longer take into account the money spent on a lot of drinks the landlady charges for in advance, or the time wasted in waiting for the goods whose delivery is deferred so as to enhance their value, or the endless shilly-shallying used to prompt and promote the sport of tipping. It's like, you're not, because you're not getting your shack. You're just getting a drink and you're paying for it. I think think the thing, I mean, I'll I'll come on to this in a minute. Adam, what do you, you, do you consider that your writing has been influenced by this? Um, If you'd have asked me that before I reread it, I would have probably said mildly, but not enormously. But there there were some, there were some scenes that particularly, I think, because a lot of um, a lot of my writing is kind of people on their own, not necessarily yeah. sort of isolated in um, you know in a building like uh, Des Essences, but sort of, for example, in Feeding Time, the director is sort of a recluse in his uh, yeah. in his study, and there are there are scenes which are almost sort of unconsciously. Um, I can't remember which chapter it is. There's one where where there's a sound. It opens and he's he's sort of he's he's lounging in his chair and he's reflecting on something, something he's he's recently been up to. And there is a chapter in Feeding Time that opens on, on almost exactly the same tone. Um, interesting. Yeah, and I really I can't say it crossed my mind at all when I was writing it. But there's something to do with that sort of. Um, certainly, I think turning the turning the volume up to eleven in a way at, uh, at mm. certain moments. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested to know how it's sort of its its status in France. I mean, it seems to me that there's something 
brilliantly French mm -hmm. about the way he, he becomes a Catholic. I mean, and that the sort of that there's a, there's a very sniffy essay that T.S. Eliot wrote about Baudelaire, you know, sort of saying he was man enough for damnation, <laughs> but the, you know, in a sort of Anglicany way, you can't imagine, you can't imagine the quite the same transition. The, the, the essay that he writes twenty years after, when he looks back on the book, and he basically says, "I was right about pretty much everything except for that chapter, number, the number six chapter, where I." I corrupt a young boy <laughs> portrayed him to be a murderer. I probably wouldn't write that in the same way. Yeah. But otherwise, he's basically kind of unrepentant. He's just saying, I just, I was just training, this book was just a staging post. It was an amazing mm. phrase he used about God. He says, God was digging holes to lay his wires, which is just, a, mm. that's what he was doing with mm. the book. So he, he's able to sort of justify and defend his book as a, not, as I say, not just as a, a, a Catholic, but as an oblate, somebody who is, yeah. you know, essentially gone into monastic orders but still mm -hmm. living in society. And in France, Aribor, I assume, is still read. But I, I was reading yeah. something saying Labat is the book here in France that's for the, which that's the, the, Satanism mm -hmm. yeah. is the one that's best known. Right? Yeah, yeah. Very French. And actually, I was, I was looking at the just our... We have quite a big um, French literature and translation section here, and that, that definitely that's the title that we sell most of for him. Mm -hmm. That's very um, interesting. What's the one you were telling me about about the country? Oh, that was what oh, I want to read. Okay, so the book that the book the, so he has a, a huge. We're publishing people. He has a huge. He has a publishing phenomenal success with Araboa. Three years later, he follows it up with a book called On Rad, where a couple move to the country and have a terrible time because all the local peasants who they think are going to be marvellous rustic H.E. Bates types rip them off and it's interspersed with these extraordinary <laughs> dream sequences, some of the most obscene dream sequences imaginable and uh, at the end, guess what? It's a it's a failure, and they come back to Paris. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's the Huisman's narrative. It's the attempt to attempt to withdraw, to to find something, be it uh, uh, a rural idyll or or an aesthetic height or or um, extreme Satanism, mm -hmm. and coming through it and going, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's, there's perhaps there's spirituality. And uh, towards the end of his life, Huisman's died in a particularly um, 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 lingering and unpleasant way. Uh, but he felt that he had, there was nothing more to write about because suffering was the thing, expression yeah. of faith. Yeah. And therefore, mm. that, that was where, that's where he had been going all that time. I guess, if you're case of the prosecution, you know, there's a sort of a, a, a vein of misogyny that's kind of that mm -hmm. runs through the book. Mm -hmm. That's you're either yeah. you're either some mad goddess kind of Salome. Mm -hmm. There's an amazing, yeah. very quite erotic scene. He, I mean, the other thing, he's a lot of the artists like Gustave Moreau and Odilon Redon, which he kind of popularised through his <laughs> through, his, through the book. But anyway, but. But there's that. Then all there's the, the so it's whores or or kind of goddesses. But also, to be fair, there's not many books where a man hires a ventriloquist yes. to come and throw her voice into a sphinx and read Flaubert for his sexual gratification. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure what category that falls into. But, uh, I, I, niche. I, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I yeah. It's, I wonder if that's a bit to do with the the decadence in itself, though. That sort yeah. of in the sense of. You know, decadence and this decline, it's sort of the the end of nature, the end of sort of the overcoming nature. And I guess in a way, yeah. to somebody who's committed to that, the it's, figure of woman will sort of, in a sense, will represent the, the continuance. Of well, it. it seems to me, weirdly, it is a very strange devotional text. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a very yes. odd religious book absolutely I mean, and i think if you read it as a sort of if you if you read it in that way and if you look look looking backwards on it it's it's and it's the it's the absolute antithesis of a of a sort of he hates at one point he utilitarianism is his idea of a nightmare i mean it's it's a very it's a very extreme spiritually intense so you know that all that sensory it's be, i mean it's there in mm -hmm. the tr in the tradition of self-mortification in the mm -hmm. church from that the senses need to be engaged and, and, and stimulated to the point of excess almost to, to, to get to that sort of religious uh, insight. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a bit about 
Submission by Welbeck. Um, Welbeck's last novel, very controversial last novel, uh, uh, less remarks upon uh, aspect of it is that the the protagonist mm. is an expert in huismans. Mm-hmm. And you, I realised when I went back to this book, having reread Against Nature and, and read Robert Baldick's book, that you can read Submission as an extremely ironic version <laughs> of the Huisman's journey, that Welbeck's protagonist has a, a, a moment of spiritual awakening deeply ironically mm-hmm. when he converts to Islam because he's totally lost faith in Huisman's. That's, that, that's, that's the story of the book. And there's a bit here by Welbeck. I must... I, you, you know, I'm, if you're playing Andy Miller bingo at home, <laughs> you'll realise that I've managed to include wow. both yeah, Welbeck and Anita Bruckner in this. But, uh, Have you got I'm, the kinks in yet? I, I, ha- I haven't quite. I'm just, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs... So the book starts with the description of Huisman's and, and, and studying Huisman's. He says, Welbeck's protagonist says, The academic study of literature leads basically nowhere, as we all know. <laughs> Unless you happen to be an especially gifted student, in which case it prepares you for a career teaching the academic study of literature. It is, in other words, a rather farcical system that exists solely to replicate itself and yet manages to fail more than 95% of the time. <laughs> Still, it's harmless and can even have a certain marginal value. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, uh, how do you follow Arabur? The obvious answer is with great difficulty. Indeed, on Rad, which follows Arabur, is a disappointing book. How could it not be? And yet, if it's faults, it's air of stagnation and slow decline. Never quite overcome our pleasure in reading it. This is thanks to a stroke of genius on Weisman's part to recount in a book bound to be disappointing, the story of a disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) The coherence between subject and treatment makes an aesthetic whole. It gets pretty boring, yes, but you keep reading because you can feel that the characters aren't the only ones stranded in their country retreat. Huisman's is stranded there too. It would almost seem that he was trying to go back to naturalism, the sordid naturalism of the countryside, where the peasants turn out to be more adject and greedy even than the Parisians. (laughs) (laughs) And so on as I mean, you know, that's wonderful. So, Adam, is this a good place to start with Huisman's, do you think? Um, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's the only place to start with Huisman's, to be honest. It's... um, I mean, none of his books are going to be easy, I think, and none of them are... I, mean, I think maybe Labat is a bit more narrative driven. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it just sort of, it ha- the, the, the reputation of this book overhangs uh, Wiesman's as a writer so heavily that I don't think, sort of every, all of his other books in a sense gravitate around it. I, 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 I think it is completely exhilarating. Mm-hmm. I think it is a totally, we, we overuse this word here. But it is remarkable, mm. and it is extraordinary, <laughs> and it is unique. There is yeah, no, no is. other... Most books are like other books. This is like no other book. There's one moment where he's talking about Moreau in the in the text, actually, and he says, with no real ancestors and no yeah. possible descendants, he remained a unique figure in contemporary art. And that yeah. sentence really stood out to me as something that could equally be applied to this <laughs> novel, if you want to call it that. <laughs> if if it's that, absolutely. Yeah, who I, knows what it is? Who knows what it is, but you found the piece. So this, is the, this is the best defence of literary elitism. It's just a really short... He said, he's basically this idea of you could boil it down a novel you ought to be able to boil down by taking out all the t- ridiculous, superfluous descriptions, boil it down to, uh, to a, t- a tiny couple of pages... Thus condensed into one or two pages, the novel would become a communion of thought between a magical writer and an ideal reader, Mm. a spiritual collaboration of a handful of superior beings scattered throughout the universe, (laughs) a treat for literary epicures accessible to them alone. (laughs) But that's what's so so interesting about that. That is Joyce's definition of the perfect reader. Who are you writing Finnegan's Wake for? A reader who doesn't exist, who is able to comprehend what I'm trying to do. Well, it was there, and that, that sense of, you know... The, the universe, God, paring his fingernails, and the writer being the kind of that sort of the writer as priest. It's there in Eliot as well, you know. But um, yeah, should we get into could with... you, Adam? Could you give us another one, another gamey extract from uh, um, the yeah, book? Yeah, I've marked quite a few actually, but I I think maybe just to kind of give an example of the the kind of in a sense the underlying absurdity, but also the 
um, sort of the, the, the beauty of the construction yeah. of this um, of this book. There's, so this is um, quite near the beginning. This is chapter the beginning of chapter two, in fact, where he um, he sold all of his goods. He's moved into his um, into, into working his on house. his designs, and, and he's, he's trying to figure out how to essentially eliminate as much of the exterior world as possible. Um, so here we go, beginning of chapter two. After the sale of his goods, Desaissant kept on two old servants who had looked after his mother and who between them had acted as steward and concierge at the Chateau de Lourpe while it waited empty and untenanted for a buyer. He took with him to Fontenay this faithful pair who had been accustomed to a methodical sick room routine, trained to administer spoonfuls of physic and medicinal brews at regular intervals, and inured to the absolute silence of cloistered monks, barred from all communication with the outside world and confined to rooms where the doors and windows were always shut. The husband's duty was to clean the rooms and go marketing, the wife's to do all the cooking. Desaissant gave up the first floor of the house to them, but he made them wear thick felt slippers, had the doors <laughs> fitted with tambours and their hinges well oiled, and covered the floors with long pile carpeting to make sure that he never heard the sound of their footsteps overhead. He also arranged a code of signals with them so that they should know what he needed by the number of long or short peals he rang on his bell. And he appointed a particular spot on his desk where the household account book was to be left once a month while he was asleep. In short, he did everything he could to avoid seeing them or speaking to them more often than was absolutely necessary. However, since the woman would have to pass alongside the house occasionally to get to the woodshed, and he had no desire to see her commonplace silhouette through the window, he had a costume made for her... He, <laughs> he had a costume made for her of Flemish fay with a white cap and a great black hood let down on the shoulders, such as the Beguines still wear to this day at Gent. The shadow of this coif gliding past in the twilight produced an impression of convent life and reminded him of those peaceful, <laughs> pious communities, those sleepy villages shut away in some hidden corner of the busy, wide-awake city. Oh, my God. Oh, brilliant. Definitely, there's a bit of Royston Vasey there. It's oh. just the madness, isn't there? But it's it just... It's, it's, yeah, put those felt shoes on. I, I don't want to... But in a weird kind of way, it also makes me Let me, me talk you through the keys. <laughs> <laughs> but it made me think of Tom, uh, Tom McCarthy's remainder yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. in that sort of obsess obsessive attention to detail. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think we're going to get anywhere any better than that as a, as a place to end. <laughs> and it, if, if all we've done is made you think of Arabur as a comic, a classic of comic literature, <laughs> I think it is. I don't know, who uh, knows what a, it is? I, I, it's a great I, book. This is one of those books that we occasionally do, like when we did Under the Volcano. Yeah. You know, that it, it's, it's, there's only one yeah. of it. Yeah. And whatever it is, it, I, like I said earlier, exhilarating is the word. I find it hilarious mm. and thought provoking oh, and, uh, and, and it, boring in places yeah. because he, he wants it to be boring. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's doing when he's doing the history of Latin, you know, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interminable history of, of a period of Latin literature that really nobody. Nobody oh. much cares and about And then he drops into peptone enemas. Yeah, yeah. The peptone enemas. Meat enema. On that savoury, <laughs> gamey <laughs> note, um, we should stop. Thanks to Adam and to Sylvia and to the glorious Shakespeare and Company in Paris, to our producer Matt Hall, and thanks once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at Backlisted and on our page on the Unbound site, which is now uh, unbound.com forward slash boundless forward slash backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, au revoir. La comédie, c'est fini. <laughs> <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisteds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.